Welcome back to the TEFL Training Institute podcast, everyone. I'm Ross Thorburn, and on today's episode, we're looking at self-assessment. Self-assessment obviously relates to a lot of other topics, including things like assessment and evaluation, learner autonomy, and metacognition. And today we have an expert in those areas, Sarah Cotterell, joins us. And in today's show, you'll hear Sarah talking about how students can keep records related to their own learning, how to develop rubrics and benchmarks for student learning, and finally, how to relate self-assessment to evaluation. Enjoy the episode. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to the podcast. Before we get into students really assessing themselves, I wanted to ask you about record keeping, because I think that's really the first step in the self-assessment process. Can you tell us about how students can keep records of their language learning and how can that be useful for students? I believe it's essential to keep records, but we had a complete misfire at Victoria University a few decades ago now. We produced this super fancy, fabulous record student record learning record booklet or something like some sequence of those four words. And we came up with every kind of graph and picture and way of measuring and la, 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 and put it all together. And the students never touched it. And they never touched it because it was a product of our brains and not theirs. So if we start with, yes, we need to record what we're doing in learning, but we have to present learners with different ways of doing it and then find what works for them. You know, it's kind of infuriating that we can't make them do it our way, but there'd be no point. So let's say the learner is trying to increase their reading speed. So you talk to them about the fact that if you want to increase your reading speed, there's a kind of a technique, you know. So you want to work with texts that are at the same level of difficulty, more or less, and the same length, and you want to time yourself. And you want to do that repeatedly over time. And you would say, okay, on Monday at 9 o'clock or Tuesday at 2 or whatever it is, we're going to do this activity. And they have a, a graph. And on that graph, they count how many words per minute they read. And there's a whole way of working that out, which is easy. And there's also a broad measure of comprehension because otherwise you could be reading quickly but not understanding. And so we say what we're doing is we're monitoring progress here. We're seeing how we are improving or not improving. If we're not improving, there's a really good thing to talk about. So what's going on? What are you focusing on? Is the level too difficult to start with? Are there too many unknown words on the page? That sort of thing. You could impose, in our case, we do impose that on everyone. So it's like that's one type of record keeping. Those are some really nice examples, Sarah. Can you tell us also about students creating their own ways of keeping records and, and measuring their progress? Absolutely. And I once wrote an article, it was about learners, and I was determined that they would come up with their own um, measures of language learning progress. Because what happened, Ross, was almost everyone said, I want to improve my listening. And almost everyone used, um, you'll remember it, I'm sure, the um, TV series Friends. Almost everyone did. And so we had all of the videos or whatever format they were in in those days. And we also had transcriptions of them all. And so it 
got to be a little bit of a pattern. So Fumiko would come along and I'd say, the end of each session, so what did you do today? You know, I watched friends. Good. And what did you learn? Oh, you know, I, I think I understood a bit better. How do you know, I would say? Well, you know, ooh, horrible question. How do, how do I know that I know? I don't know. And so we then made that a whole class discussion, and you would be amazed at how creative they were. Some of them came up with things like they would watch a very short section repeatedly and without the subtitles, they could pick up two of the four questions that Joey asked when he walked in the room or that sort of thing, you know. Um, they had very creative ways. Another one wanted to improve his ability to activate the vocabulary that he was learning. So, you know, we all say, oh, yes, I've learned 5,000 words, blah, blah. But he wanted to say, I'm using them. I'm not just learning them and can remember, I'm using them. And so he had the most amazing Excel spreadsheet. He had every word down the left-hand side, and then he had he'd come across it and he'd known it, so that was passive, receptive. And then he had I inserted it into one of my essays. You know, yes, and I and did I get negative feedback from the teacher? Yes or no? And then I inserted it and I got positive. Unbelievably analytical. But the point is, he came up with an original measure that totally worked for him and his motivation was sustained by the fact that his record keeping showed him that he was moving forward so it's complicated that is not an easy thing to design or to do but it's powerful when it takes off because people will do more of any activity that's working for them at which they're successful you know i really really like that example there and it reminds me of working with teachers and getting teachers to be involved in the process of creating the criteria by which they get assessed or evaluated at the end of every year or, or semester or whatever. And I generally find that if teachers are involved in that process of creating the criteria, then they're much more likely to buy into that system. And I guess the same thing is true for students as well, that if they're part of creating those tools, then they'll also be more likely to use them. But the other thing I really like about that student finding things in friends that he was able to understand is it's a great example of minimalist teaching, where in some cases, I think the less the teacher does, the more the students do and the more the students learn. And then, yeah. of course, what you do is you get him to show that to the class. And then the others think, wow, I mean, gee, I've got a different goal, but I can probably think of some clever way of doing that, you know. So, Far more powerful than any communication from me is to have the peer, to have the student do it, you know, so absolutely right. Great. So I know another big part of self-assessment is creating benchmarks or rubrics for success. One of my colleagues here did this in a public speaking class he did with some primary school students. He got students to watch some great examples of public speaking talks, got the students to learn about public speaking. And as they went through the course, the students created their own rubrics. And then by the end of the course, they used their own rubrics to measure their own progress, which I thought was a really nice way of doing that. Can you tell us what have you done with your students, Sarah, to get them to benchmark their learning? One way might be to have groups of people. So you work out what their goals are, and it might be a reading goal or a vocab goal or a listening or speaking, whatever, and they work together on that. And so we say, well, basically, we're trying to unpack this thing. We don't want to say, 
I'm good at speaking or bad at speaking because that's not really useful. What we've got to do is find shades of meaning along a continuum. So if you think with listening, for example, you know, if I want to be able to understand a TED Talk, TED Talks are awesome, aren't they? And they're all transcribed. So I want to be able to understand a TED Talk. Okay, so what are the things that are going to help me? And you do it well, that the topic is familiar, maybe that the speaker, although they're speaking English, comes from my country. Why is that useful? Actually, because we've got all that background knowledge in common. So the speaker may refer to things or even think about the topic in a way that's familiar to me. Whereas if you've got, you know, like a Kiwi talking in English about climate change, you've sort of got a couple of different barriers going on at the same time. So what else would make it easy? Well, it would make it easy if I knew the focus of the topic. So we do this with EAP in terms of the abstract of the lecture. We really, really hammer that home. Or the abstract of the journal article. You know, if you don't use an abstract well, you're wasting one of the best tools that ever existed sort of thing, you know. And so if I have the abstract, you don't with TED, but you might be able to guess some other things. There might be key words. So what are those things? I can see this happening in a class where there's the group talking about the TED talk and there's the group talking about the journal article and and they report back to each other and maybe somebody was in a different group can think of yet another. And what you would then do is capture that somehow. Could they capture the summary of those things and then it becomes... Have you got a a shared space that that can become a document we can refer back to or something like that? You could say, let's just do something really crude at first. So when I used all those supports, I kind of got the gist, right? That might be kind of level one or something, or there's probably levels before that. But then what might be another level? Another level might be, I got the gist, and I actually understood one of the times, this is quite sophisticated, but when he said something and the audience laughed. Humour. Wow. You actually got one of his jokes? Or I understood one of his narratives. You know how we tell stories in a lecture or a talk. So, you know, we're talking about climate change. Say So, for example, we used to go and, and visit this particular but I understood the whole of the narrative. And so you're just showing them you can break it down, break it down, break it down. By breaking it down, you then apply that grid, whatever it is, to the next TED Talk and the next and the next. And the motivation for doing it is that you can see progress. Nobody wants to go and watch 4,000 episodes of Friends and not get any better. What's the point? You want to be doing it for a reason. You've got a goal. I think that's such a good point, Sarah, about it leading to motivation, because I feel with so many things that we do, language learning included, that day by day, the progress that we make is so small and incremental, it's almost invisible. And so that means it's difficult to notice that you have improved. It reminds me of a course I did a while ago, also on public speaking. And near the end of the course, we showed the students videos of themselves doing their first talk at the beginning of the course and their penultimate talk near the end of the course and ask the students to notice what they and their peers had improved on. And again, in this course, even for me as the teacher, day to day, it was not that clear what progress the students were making. But when you saw the students at the beginning of the course and the end of the course, the progress was huge. And I think that was so motivating for them. Now, finally, I wanted to ask you about self-assessment and grading. I think for me, before when I heard anything related to assessment, I assumed that it had to have a grade stuck to it. 
But obviously, most of the things that we've been talking about so far with self-assessment really more relate to motivation and students becoming more aware of what they're good at and what they need to improve on. So is it possible to relate self-assessment also to grading and evaluation? I can't answer that question for all of life, but I know a couple of things. One thing I know is that learners consistently underestimate their performance. They do not inflate it. And the other thing I know is that Gareth Murray and I, when we worked in Japan, in our independent learning course, they evaluated themselves at the end of that course. But they had to justify the grade they gave themselves with quite an extensive portfolio, which included their own original means of assessing whatever their goals were and so on and so forth. And I was there for four years, I think, possibly once or twice, I would have come up with a different evaluation than the the student. And I think we had a process whereby we then met with them and it wasn't sort of scary because you know, but it was okay and talked about it. And so why did they think? And and very often, Rob, what was interesting was very often there was other evidence. There was evidence from stuff that wasn't even about being at university, but say they had a foreign friend who lived in their building or something and they were finding that they could do, it was data-based, it was evidence-based. So I just found that the most encouraging thing, kind of like we we do infantilize students, I think. We believe that we have all the answers, which we so don't. And they are so well-placed to know what's going to work for them that we should just let them do it. And, of course, check in with us and report to us and all of that, but use their intelligence and their creativity. One more time, everyone, that was Sarah Cottrell. For more from her, go to her website. It's cotterellconsulting.com. You can find a link to that in the show notes. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find hundreds of other similar podcasts to this on our website, www.tefltraininginstitute.com. If you enjoy the show and you'd like to help support us, you can click on the link in the show notes to buy us a coffee or go over to buymeacoffee.com slash Ross Thorburn. And a big thanks to everyone who supported the show recently. That's my Ong, Michael, Helen, Morag and Sarah. Thanks so much to all of you for helping to keep the lights on here. All right. Thanks again, everyone, for listening and we'll see you again next time. Goodbye.